Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series, Celebrating the Word of God, with Dr. John Newfeld. As we begin our second week, we'll take time to examine another essential topic on the authority of the Bible. So let's join Dr. Newfeld for today's message. Our culture has a problem with authority. We've been taught to question authority, challenge authority, protest against unjust use of authority, even overthrow authority. But as most of us know, the term authority can be used in positive and negative ways. If a certain man or woman speaks authoritatively on a subject, we mean that they've mastered a subject in a way that no one else has and can speak with a greater knowledge than others. And that is attractive. If you're in the military, you have a commanding officer, and when he or she barks out an order, you're expected to do it immediately, for they are in authority over you. Or if you appear in a court, the decision of the judge, or if it's a jury, decides the outcome of the trial. That's authority. And if you're at a sporting event, the referee blows the whistle and makes a call. That call is the authority on the legality of a play. Now, as we know, in sports, we now have instant replay that shows us that referees do make mistakes. Their authority is fallible, and video review can overthrow their call. In law, we have higher courts in which a ruling can be appealed. And in politics, we have elections and sometimes protests, challenges to authority to help clarify that authority should rest in the hands of the people, and it should be challenged and it should be changed. I remember watching a news program in which a well-known pastor was being interviewed on the subject of homosexuality. The interviewer said the Constitution of the United States has been amended on various points, and it's still a valuable document, so why can't you do the same with a Bible? And the pastor responded by saying that the Constitution of the United States is a human constitution made by fallible human beings, but the Bible is a divine book and therefore constitutes a very different kind of authority than the one we imagine. Well said. When we speak about the authority of the Bible, what are we actually talking about? We might respond by saying that the Bible has authority over our lives, over our opinions, and over our judgments. You know, there's an old saying that simply says, the Bible says it, and that settles it. But more and more, even in Christian circles, I hear people challenging this. It gets challenged not on the basis that its actual authority is being challenged, but rather on the basis that we have misunderstood its authority. Let me explain. We are told that the literary style of a text determines meaning, and we have often failed to understand the literary style of a text, and therefore, we've misunderstood the meaning. And then comes grammar and word usage and and the wider context and the historical background in which a given text is written, while the list of things to remember when doing Bible study goes on and on. And as Bible teachers and theologians struggle with and even argue over the meaning of a text— we do get a sense that the straight-up authority of the Bible is blunted. So if we can't agree on its meaning, how are we to speak of its authority? If you listen to me tomorrow, I'm going to speak on the issue of the clarity of the Bible. That is, how confident can we be that we have understood a text correctly? But let's stay on track. Let's continue to press the issue of the authority of the Bible. 
Normally, when we think about authority, we often think about commands, like the Ten Commandments. As has been said, they're not the Ten Suggestions. Well, true enough. And as we know, the Bible is filled with commands. Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling. Now, that's pretty clear, a direct command, even though, as you and I probably know, a command that's often broken. Nonetheless, an authoritative command. Or consider 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Or Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, all of those are very clear commands. So commands are given, and we notice that those commands are given with authority. But, and here's where it gets murky, not everything in the Bible is a command. And as we know, some parts of the Bible are historical accounts, and then there are genealogies, and then we have some laws that are clearly directed to a long-distant people at a specific time period, like the command never to have two kinds of fabric in one garment, or laws regarding leprosy or detecting mildew at a house. And then we have detailed description of things like, well, for instance, in Numbers chapter 4, where the Kohathites are given their actual duties as it relates to the tabernacle, a building that today no longer exists. None of these things are commands. Neither is it easy to see how some of these things directly relate to our own lives. I think you're getting the idea. When we say that the Bible has authority, we need to try to understand exactly what we're communicating. So where do we begin? I think the logical place to begin is to begin by asking what the Bible actually says about itself. Now, the first rather obvious claim is that the Bible claims that all the words written in it are the actual words of God. Now, there are those who struggle with that. After all, the Bible also makes the claim that all the words written in it are actually man's words. Yes, there are parts of the Bible that claim to come directly as a result of dictation. I mean, consider the words in Revelation chapters 2 and then chapter 3 as well. The reason Jesus has appeared to John the Apostle while John is living on the island of Patmos in Greece. And Jesus tells John that he has something to say to seven churches in Asia Minor. And then it seems as if Jesus speaks and John writes down exactly what Jesus says. So, for instance, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. And then a direct message is given to that church. Now, that same formula gets repeated six more times. And in each case, Jesus is speaking directly and John writes down precisely what Jesus said. That's called dictation. And while there are times when such a process actually happens, for instance, the giving of the Ten Commandments, again, is just such a process, yet, in the majority of cases, this is not what we find. I mean, consider the beginning of the book of Luke, and I'm reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having examined all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. See, it seems that the book of Luke comes as a result of Luke doing thorough historical research, interviewing primary witnesses, and carefully comparing their accounts to already existing written accounts. 
Furthermore, as we well know, a great many of the New Testament books are letters written to the churches. Many of the Psalms are poems not about what God is saying to us or commanding us, but rather are a reflection of what people are saying to God, a cry to God from genuine human experience that expresses the widest possible range of human emotion. And if you haven't heard it yet, you should hear it now. The various writers of the Bible express themselves in a way that communicates their humanity and their unique personalities. I remember years ago when I took my first ever Greek class. Uh, We went through endless vocabulary lists and and grammatical rules of the language, and, and finally came that time when we had the opportunity to read an entire book of the Bible and actually utilize what we had been learning. You know, the book under discussion, 1 John. I was amazed as I read the book in its original languages at what an accomplished Greek scholar I had become in such a short while. I I remember telling my wife, Greek is easy, I said with enthusiasm. I could read the book and even give grammatical explanations to every single phrase. But then we started to tackle Romans, and, and man, oh man, was that different. Instantly, I realized how much I had yet to learn about this language. The language was so different than the language that John had used and so much more complex. I came to realize that John's writings and Paul's writings were remarkably different. John wrote very simply, and Paul was writing as a scholar. And that seemed apparent in reading the original language. See, that's also true when you begin to see how the different Bible writers actually use various words. Read Paul's use of the word works, and then compare that the way in which James uses the word works, and you'll soon discover they mean something very different in the way that they use that one word. Or read Jeremiah, and you find it's a very emotional book. Jeremiah is often filled with tears, and other Bible writers are not. And so it becomes quite clear that the Bible is a very real human book, and yet it's a divine book. How do we understand that? Well, consider Jesus. Haven't we always been taught that Jesus is fully human and yet fully divine? And that's exactly what we should say about our Bible as well. Yes, the Bible is a fully human book bearing all the marks of human authorship. And yes, the Bible is a fully divine book. And as a fully divine book, it has a unique authority which supersedes every other authority. Now, we're going to say a whole lot more about that when we come back. The authoritative nature of the Bible is something we must never take for granted. For instance, we can't just assume that all Christians necessarily believe the Bible's ultimate authority. That said, we're all called to submit to every word that has been given to us in the Scriptures, not just the commands, and encourage others to do the same. When we return, Dr. Neufeld wraps up today's study by explaining how we can know that every word is inspired by God and yet retains its original human authorship. As we celebrate three years of ministry partnership with Back to the Bible India, We are blessed to report the Bible teacher program with Dr. John Neufeld is being heard across India and throughout much of Asia, including the Middle East and China. We're also excited to announce that we're continuing our pastor's Bible teaching conferences with this year's conferences taking place in Delhi and Hyderabad in June of 2019. 
providing training in expositional Bible teaching and encouragement to Indian pastors. Your prayers and support make both the Bible teaching program and the pastors conferences possible. So this month, would you consider your support for these initiatives with an international ministry gift? For this international campaign, we're pleased to let you know that any gift today of any amount will be matched up to $25,000. Here is your chance to double what your gift can do around the world. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca. In spite of the fact that the Bible contains the words that very real human beings wrote down, yet at the same time, the Bible claims that those very same words are the words of God. In a past broadcast, we noticed that the words, thus says the Lord, especially when spoken by various prophets, is a phrase that comes up over and over again. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, God promises to put his words into the mouth of the prophet he has chosen. In Jeremiah 1, after God announces to Jeremiah that he was a chosen prophet and appointed him as a prophet to the nations, in verse 7, God says, Whatever I command you, you shall speak. And in verse 9, God says, Behold, I have put my words into your mouth. The same thing gets repeated in other passages. There are two New Testament passages that speak about the kind of phenomenon we read when reading the Old Testament. The first is found in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I want you to notice several things about that passage. The term scripture is the Greek word graphe, and it can also be translated as writings. That same word is used 51 times in the New Testament, and in every case it refers to the 39 books that make up our Old Testament. Now, if you follow this series through, you'll remember that I made the case that since Jesus himself had selected the men who would write for him, that their authority is as great as that of the Old Testament. But here, let's see what the New Testament writers said about the Old Testament. Notice that all of it is breathed out by God. That would include the historical accounts, the genealogies, the Psalms, the prophets, all of what we find. Indeed, these writings teach and reprove and correct our thoughts and patterns of living and trains us as we learn to act and live righteously. See, that sounds like authority. But what does that mean or what does that imply? It means quite simply that when biblical writers wrote, either at the dictation of God or by historical research or by reporting on a census or by recounting the events of a battle or some other historical development, that God the Holy Spirit supervised and superintended the work so that every single word that was written were the very words God directed to be written and were, in fact, God's own words speaking through the personality of the prophet. In other words, God did not cancel out the unique personality of each writer as he declared his word. And says 2 Timothy 3.16, every word contributes to our lives. Not one single word is superfluous or unnecessary. Each word was required for our sanctification. Now, remember, I said that the New Testament had two important verses which instruct us as we read the Old Testament. The first was 2 Timothy 3.16, and the second is 2 Peter 1, verses 20 to 21. That says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. 
For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Notice several things. Peter's point here is not about the interpretation of Scripture. Rather, it is about the authority of Scripture. The Greek word for interpretation has the idea of loosing. That is, no scriptural prophet released or loosed their own ideas when they wrote. That's why, in order to emphasize this point, Peter repeats himself. No written word came about through the will of man or by their own creativity or even by their own internal inspiration, but rather they were continually, moment by moment, as they wrote, being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Imagine a text like Psalm 28, written by David. To you, O Lord, I call, my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like one of those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. So we've noticed that David's not giving commands here, nor has God dictated these words, but rather David is praying and he's pleading with God in a time of crisis. But, and here's the issue, over and under and around these words was the Holy Spirit directing David's prayer in just such a way that this kind of praying might model for us how we also might pray in times of crisis. We should not picture David as passively, simply writing down what the Holy Spirit dictated to him. No, no. He is actively praying. He's using his own words. Yet every word he uses was superintended by God. And that's why in the Old Testament alone, the human writers refer to their words as the words of God over 3,800 times. Now, there's so much more we can say. I mean, consider Jesus in his temptation. And with each temptation, he quotes Scripture. Indeed, in Matthew 4, verse 4, he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds, hear this now, from the mouth of God, not the mouth of David or, or, or whoever else wrote, the mouth of God. Or consider Acts 1.16, where Peter is preaching and he's quoting from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. And from these verses, he says, the Holy Spirit spoke. Well, we could go on and on. Acts 2, quoting Joel 2, Peter says, God declares. And in Luke 24, verse 25, Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, not some, but all. Now, I I could do more. I I could show that this same principle is true of the New Testament as well. 1 Timothy 5.18 calls Luke 10.7 scripture, and Peter calls Paul's writings scripture. I mean, we could go on and on, but the point should become readily apparent. The Bible comes to us with the authority of God. And furthermore, not only has the Holy Spirit superintended the writing of Scripture, but the Holy Spirit also provides believers with an inner conviction that when we read these words, they are Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 2.13, Paul claims that the words he writes were taught by the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 14 and 15, he claims that the natural man will reject these words, but the spiritual man will welcome them. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. And indeed, we do hear the voice of God speaking as we read. And from this, we can form two conclusions about the authority of the Bible. Here's the first. To disbelieve any word from the Bible is to disbelieve God. That will mean everything. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we will always understand the words of Scripture correctly. 
We must not superimpose the idea that our interpretation of Scripture is always correct. We'll talk about that more tomorrow, but let me repeat it here. If the Bible truly is what it claims to be, then to disbelieve any part of Scripture is to disbelieve God. That actually means the Bible really does have the last word on all matters that it addresses. Everything from who is of God to what about homosexuality to anything else, the Bible has the last word. Here now is the second conclusion. To disobey any command of Scripture is to disobey God. When God says, be completely humble, and we're walking in pride, we're walking as deliberate rebels against God. When God commands that we must have no other gods, we know that to welcome any other thing as an object of our worship is to disobey God. God's words, both in the things he states to be true and in the things that he commands, are the things that God says and the things that God commands. And by the way, That's why our staple here at Back to the Bible is that we are a Bible teaching ministry. There will be times when we do a topical series as I'm doing now, but our bread and butter is a verse-by-verse exposition of the Bible because whenever we do that, we're declaring the very Word of God which has authority over all. And if you say, oh, that's just your opinion, well, let me help you with that. You might say, he misunderstood the text. Here's what the text actually says. And then you have to justify why your interpretation is preferred. But if you're cavalier and simply slough it off, you're a direct rebel against God. Such is the authority of Scripture. Whenever we accurately interpret and apply the Bible, we are speaking for God. God has spoken, and that's the word of His authority. Thanks for today's message, John. Uh, One thing maybe you can clarify for us is this whole idea, if it's not a command, well, how do we determine what God is telling us to do? Yeah, it does require some discipline as we do our Bible study. Uh, I'm going to say a little bit more about that tomorrow. I think I keep mentioning that. But nonetheless, I think we need to look at each section of Scripture on its own. First of all, understand it within the context in which it was given. How are we to understand it? And then only after a sense of understanding do we apply that text to our own lives. And the way we do application changes. You know, I mentioned the psalm where we watch David pray and learn something of praying. In other ways, we'll learn from the text itself how to apply that. It becomes second nature sometimes. There is so much important ground we've covered here about the authority of the Bible. As we consider how the Bible is written both by men, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, this message has provided us with some great insight. For instance, 1 Peter 2, 20-21 is an important reminder that helps us understand the dual nature of the Bible as both divine and human. Our hope is that today's message has encouraged you and reminded all of us that there is so much at stake when we consider the authority of God's Word. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. February 28th will be the last day to participate in our International Ministry Match Campaign. Our international efforts include our partnership with Back to the Bible India, providing Bible teaching programming throughout India much of Asia, including the Middle East and China. It also provides funding for our annual Pastors Bible Teaching Conferences, the next two taking place in Delhi and Hyderabad in June of this year. 
Your efforts allow these important ministry initiatives to take place whereby thousands are discipled, pastors are instructed, and the Word of God is taught. Also, your participation provides critical resources for the launching of the daily Bible teaching program translated into key international languages available both nationally and globally, beginning with Mandarin. Join us this month for our International Match campaign and see your donation doubled up to $25,000. So call today at 1-800-663-2425 or give online at backtothebible.ca.